and welcome to the new Improved Suds, where we go through the highlights from the Startup Daily Show, 2pm on AusBiz every week. I'm Simon Thompson, editor of StartupDaily.net and of course host of the show. This is where we talk about the great things we do every week and what's going on in the world. We've shaken up a little bit with the new improved version and I get a special guest in. My guest this week is Ben Chong from Right Click Capital. G'day, Ben. Nice to see you, Simon. Yeah, uh, regular on the show, of course, and on the website. And I thought it'd be great to have a chat with you today. Now, we've split it up into three parts or four parts all up of course we will get to our guests on the show this week but we're going to start with the big news and it's our mate again the twitter in chief elon musk who jumped uh well did jump on twitter because he can't help himself but he actually sent an email to his team sort of saying hey c-suite back in the office minimum of 40 hours a week what did you make of this ben Look, it's really a call to arms, a call to arms to get to the office. Many executives have been at home. I was out last night chatting with some people and they were saying, I love this new environment. I'm able to work at home more, have more flexibility. But I think Mr Musk wants to see people in the office a bit like him. Yes, well, it was a leaked email which was headlined, remote work is no longer acceptable. (laughs) Uh, So you know it was genuine because there was typos in it. Um, But it said, anyone who wishes to do remote work must be in the office for a minimum, and then he put in brackets, and I mean a minimum of 40 hours per week or depart Tesla. Uh, This is less than we ask of factory workers, which raised my eyebrows, I have to say, because I thought the US brought a 40-hour working week in in about 1940, but we'll move on from that. The uh, remarkable thing about this was someone put it up on Twitter His response when they asked, you know, hey, uh, any additional comment to people who think coming into work is an antiquated concept, he said, pretend to work somewhere else. So his views are pretty clear. As you talk to your founders, Ben, what are they saying about this juggle? Because, of course, over the last two years, I've interviewed CEOs who haven't even been into their own office or met their team in the time they've been appointed. Of course, co-founders who have done the whole thing remote along the way as well. I reckon it's a mixed bag out there, Simon. And to work from home or to work from remote spaces properly requires you to have the right tools, the right motions, the right cadences. And I think those who are doing the hybrid, where you've got some people at home, some people in the office, that's probably the hardest because there'll be times where you feel like you're missing out when the birthday cake, especially the lovely hazelnut, (laughs) Ferrero Rocher birthday cake is on at the office at 11 o'clock and you're at home. And then at the same time, when you are wanting to corral people around an idea or a difficult conversation, it's really hard, I feel, to do that over Zoom, especially when it's a sensitive topic. Yeah, you can't rally the troops in a Slack channel, can you? Um, The other one with Elon, Dogecoin. I mean, did you follow this week? Of course, there was that extraordinary report on Four Corners on Monday night looking into it where there was a fair bit of criticism levelled towards cryptocurrencies and what's going on. Jackson Palmer, the Australian-born software developer, featured on that. He's the one who was the co-creator of Dogecoin, He also had a chat to Crikey this week with Cam Wilson and um, wasn't very flattering when it came to Elon Musk calling him a grifter and also had a dig at him for not understanding Python script. Now, yet again, the world's richest man just thought that he had to jump on Twitter and have a whack at him and then get stuck in. I'm going to ask you this question because this is what struck me. 
if someone carried on like that in one of the startups you worked with, would you invest in it? And what would you say to them? It would be very difficult. But if they'd had success after success <laughs> after success, then maybe something could be forgiven. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a few sins, I think, <laughs> running around in that leadership style at the moment, but uh, we won't go there on that. Ben, I want to talk about you because this is part of what I want to do every week with our special guest. Just drill down. We, Of course, we're always talking about founders. You're very founder-focused as an investor, but I want to hear a little bit of the Ben Chong story. How do you end up in venture capital? What was it that drew you into it? Was Were you destined for it? I don't know if I was destined for it, Simon, but when I was young, when I was at school, I loved the idea of entrepreneurship. One of my first experiences was in high school where I got t- to take part in a program called Young Achievement. Oh, and I this, did the same thing. Yes. It was amazing. Yeah. So what happens in year 11, you create a little business and it was with about 20 of my other friends, some from my school, some from the adjoining schools and going to the schools close by with the nice girls was always wonderful <laughs> and we would try to come up with a business and the business that we came up with and I think the girls really held the line here, we, we made jewellery, necklaces and bracelets. I learnt about the world of chokers and all sorts of beads and learnt even how to make earrings and we sold these at the markets. This is in the, in the early 90s. So we sold these in the markets at Kirribilli markets, at Glebe markets, at the King's Cross markets and we were able to return, get this, a profit to our investors. We raised these $2 shares, yeah, <laughs> one or $2 shares, and then people will, I don't think we're expecting to get their money back again, but we paid a return of 147%. I still remember the number. And that almost whet my appetite. I was so excited about this idea of using people's capital to fund a great idea, or kudos to the girls, and then selling the product and then making a return for those investors. Uh, that is awesome. I remember that too, going to Simplex in Brookvale. Yep. Would you believe, because as my wife knows, I'm a terrible hoarder, that I found the old business plan from the 1980s that I put together for this, this student business. Um, so let's jump forward. Yep. You're inspired by Young Achievers. When was the moment that led you down to right-click capital? I was very fortunate at university to have the opportunity to work with some large businesses. And as part of my program, I was able to spend time working with all sorts of technology-oriented businesses. And I got exposed to e-commerce. I got exposed to the building of websites. I got exposed to how to run uh, profit and loss. And it was also at university I started my first proper business with a good friend and business partner, and we sold mobile phones online. So back then we thought, if we combine these two mega trends, this thing mm-hmm. called mobile phones, remember where they were large Motorola bricks, and oh, we yes. could combine them with another mega trend, this thing called the internet, or as Bill Gates used to call it, the information superhighway. Yeah. If we combine those two together, Wow, we'd be on a double growth trajectory, and that's what we did. We sold mobile phones online. Now we were so really crazy fortunate. Bands. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> with the with the with with me looking like a clown. Now the thing is this: 
we were very fortunate to get a number of the telcos on board to support us, and we had to get through things like using an IP address as a form of verification, being able to get people's digital signature when we delivered the product to them. And these were things that were quite new back then. And what what's, has struck me as I look back on that is that there was so much excitement about e-commerce and we sold many, many phones online. But the amount of e-commerce back in the 1997, 98, is a far cry from what is the e-commerce that we experience today. And I would suggest that the e-commerce we experience today obviously accelerated with the, with COVID over the last two years, all those home deliveries and all the boxes that appear outside people's homes. But if we fast forward another 10 or 20 years, how much more e-commerce will occur in the future? So that, if you like, was my start. E-commerce, and then after that, got involved in a whole load of other businesses. That must have also given you that experience and understanding of being a category leader and sort of pioneering a space, which of course great startup founders do. You had to solve a whole bunch of problems that hadn't existed up until that point and find a way forward. Do you keep that in mind now as you talk to your founders? Oh, for sure. When people are trying to do things for the first time and are they trying to solve a novel problem? Are they really pushing through? Is it regulation that's in the way? Is it something that's technical that's in the way, which is preventing them from being able to push the envelope? And I remember having to work out and having to show people, back then it was 40-bit SSL security, and over time Mm -hmm. we increased it to 56-bit and I think 128-bit and so on. But being able to show when we are accepting people's credit cards over the internet, it is in fact safe because there is encryption in place and you need to have a cipher working on it for how many days or weeks to be able to get your digits. So we went through that process, but then also having to convince at the time the mobile phone companies that a voice signature, someone saying, yes, my name is Ben, I approve that I'm going on an 18-month contract and I'll be paying $80 a month, that is a legitimate contractual arrangement, because we know under common law a a, a verbal contract is technically as good as a written contract. It's just that a written contract is a bit easier to prove unless you have the voice recording. (laughs) Are you telling me that you basically taught the telcos how to do this? Well, I remember going to... To, to, to give them the, the, the demonstration of what we'd do and then we'd, we'd take the recording. Of course, you needed to get people's permission to be able to, to record this and then you play it back and you go, well, surely I called this person on this number on this day. This is Ben I'm talking to. That's as good as a signature, right? And well, it's standard operating procedure <laughs> nowadays. That's the thing that sort of just blew me away then. Now, the next part of the show that we get to, and this is with our, yep. our special guest today, Ben Chong from Right Click Capital, is the big idea. So I asked them something that they want to talk about. It's a little bit of Hyde Park soapbox for those of you in Sydney who know what I'm talking about, Speaker's Corner. Um <laughs> But we want to talk about the pressure that you sense is coming. You know, I've been talking about the clouds on the horizon moment for the Australian startup sector. Of course, there was news today that Envato is looking to shave some of its workforce uh, globally. They're going through that process at the moment. We've seen plenty of layoffs overseas. There is a sense that, you know, change is in the wind here in Australia. So you want to talk about the stuff that's going on and how founders are going to deal with that pressure. 
Yeah. So perhaps what we can do, Simon, is talk a little bit about the environment. Mm-hmm. We can paint some strokes around what the environment looks like, what some of those challenges are likely to be, and then, very importantly, for founders, how best they deal with that situation and how do they equip themselves to deal with that situation with the, the best version Well, I suppose part of this is it is going to be a tougher economic climate. We're seeing interest rates starting to go up, along with the cost of capital, of course. So the consequence of that is going to be that something like capital-like businesses are going to be favoured over capital-intensive ones. Should people be rethinking their startup and how it operates at this point in time around those sorts of concepts? Yeah. The backdrop, obviously, has been over the last two years, and even before that, the world has been awash in cash. Mm. We've had interest rates at historic lows. In fact, we've some countries have had negative interest rates. In other words, if you put money in the bank account, you will be losing money. Yeah. <laughs> Go and spend it, please. That's what the encouragement has been from central bankers and the associated governments. And VCs have been running around basically shoving wads of cash in startup yeah. founders' pockets. Yeah. And as a consequence, some companies which might previously have required $10 million worth of capital to get to, let's say, Basecamp, and we'll talk about what Basecamp means in a second, maybe they've done so with $50 million or $100 million. And maybe that's a bigger Basecamp. It's a sexier-looking Basecamp. It's got more frills, that Basecamp. Bigger tent. Yeah, bigger tent, (laughs) bigger party entourage. But that's what we've been seeing happen. And part of the reason has been that if you're an investor, your money, if it's left in the bank account, is being shriveled up. So therefore you need to invest it in assets that have higher yield. And venture capital and private markets, they're the asset classes that have historically been able to provide that higher yield for the investor so that you have... uh, growth in capital way over above inflation. So when you think about that, we've all heard and some of us have even watched television shows about the, the we story and the, 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 the demise, unfortunately, of, of, of WeWork and what happened there. But we can see this with other companies where they've said, yes, we're going to raise $10 million now. Look, we seem to have early signs of product market fit. Let's go and raise $20 million. Maybe we'll go and expand into one or two international markets and then, boom, we'll go and raise $100 million. Now, that's all fantastic if the unit economics work out and they're able to be, let's say, in the top decile of startups of that class. The issue is that if they become the bottom decile of startups in that class, then I suspect that they're going to find it much harder for investors to continue backing them. So, yes, to your comment there before about the capital light v capital heavy, it seems that businesses now that have the ability to be more capital light, they're going to be easier to achieve funding and they're also going to probably find it easier to find the better talent. Mm. Which uh, will solve one problem, I have to say. But I suppose there's a sense we expect in some ways startups, we, don't, we hope they don't, but we expect them to fail. Um, the majority of them will along the way. Yep. Do you think they're all going to fail faster? Probably. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's go to the other issue because we've talked about this a fair bit and I know the founder of Kappa is someone who has gone through this experience but your point and you're very big on this is looking after yourself as a founder, the importance of your mental health and all the other issues when you are feeling pressured and stressed. What's your advice? Look after yourself. You cannot make good decisions if you haven't had sleep. You can't make good decisions when you haven't had any food, where you are in a very stressed state. So I'd suggest that the very first thing is for founders to ensure that they are eating well, that they're exercising, that they are sleeping, because high-performing minds need that. I think the other thing also is acknowledging when you are under stress, when you have big, challenging decisions that are in front of you. It's okay to put your hand up and say, I'm not really sure what to do. Because yes, while I and many others might give the advice, if you're gonna make decisions, it's better to make the decisions fast. If you're wanting to extend runway, maybe it's time to review the business plan. If you're gonna make cuts, cut faster (laughs) so that you extend that runway. Like that's all great when you talk about it at the high level, but when you break it down, how do we do it? Who is the team that I need around me to ensure that the decisions that I'm making have been sense-checked, that they're going to support me once these decisions are made and we get back on the road. So I'd suggest acknowledging stress and putting the hand up for help is important, seeking a mentor, Mm -hmm. and of course your investors should be able to help with some of this, but there might be times where it is very useful to get a mentor who is interested in you, you as an individual, in your success, in your health, and not necessarily the perspective of the investors in your company. So someone who is looking out for your interests. So that could be a mentor. It could be counsellor. It could be a a therapist of some sort, whether it's a, a psychotherapist or a psychologist or someone who understands the human condition perhaps understand something about decision-making and a bit of business, who's able to help give you perspective. I've benefited from that historically, and I know many founders today who, who, who do that. Mm. So I, th- I think we, we need to almost take the stigma out of, oh, what are you doing this Thursday, Ben, at four o'clock? I'm going to go and see my, my, my therapist. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I also know that you're a massive fan of Ben Crow, Ash Barty's mindset coach, but it's that thing of having that support of, and also someone who just talks to you outside of what you do because there's that tendency, especially when you are trying to build a business, to define yourself as that business and sort of to be reminded that you are that human being is an important one. Ben, Great advice, great thoughts. I hope all the founders listening take this to heart and, of course, everyone working in startups. Let's talk about the past week and the show. And we've had a bit of a venture capital theme going on this week. One of them was with Scalata Ventures, of course, the Victorian incubator and investor who's changed its model and they've been looking at the way that they do things differently, how to do things differently. Uh, And they've gone from doing those cohorts in set pieces a couple of times a year to basically a rolling model. And this, to me, also riffs on what Phil Moyle was talking about from Main Sequence a couple of weeks earlier, where he made the point that it's time to throw the accelerator model up in the air and rethink it, innovate, and just change the whole thing. Well, I spoke with Wahid Tashkan, 
from Scalata. He told us about why he's changing the model and what's going on. We kind of looked at what we're trying to solve with founders. You know, they need capital. More people need more capital overall. Um, and more founders need more support to get through that seed stage. And realizing that that's got nothing to do with when they get the capital or support. So why do cohorts? Whether it's in January or March or April, it makes sense to kind of invest then and there and start supporting them at the time that makes sense for their business. So that's kind of a lot of the driving force behind the change of the model. So what do you reckon... Do you look at this too, Ben? Have you been looking at the accelerators, looking at because you must have this deal flow with a whole bunch of For sure. coming out of accelerators? Spend a lot of time talking to accelerators and incubators, and one of the things that I'm really excited about has been my involvement with the Founder Institute yep. in Australia and New Zealand since 2011. I agree with you. If you are going to be playing the same tune year after year after year, when the conditions change, if you do not change your tune, you might appear to be out of tune. And for Scalata and for others who have been running some of these programs, there sometimes is a need to be more dynamic. There's well, a sometimes a need to just roll with the deal flow that's in front of, of you. <laughs> yeah, and I did ask Wahid if there was a broader conversation going on with other accelerators about how to tackle this particular issue. Here's what he said. So there's definitely talk going around. I think the kind of what we realize is VCs aren't just money and accelerators kind of just being support in terms of the cohort and the workshops isn't really enough. And so you just come back to, again, support founders in whatever way makes the most sense. Um, so, you know, operational VCs over across the pond, you know, whether it's Notion in the UK, they've kind of shown that just giving support in whatever way makes sense for the founder you're working with is what works. And so it doesn't matter if you're an accelerator, if you're a venture capitalist, just do what kind of works for that business. You know, we've got Tablogs as an example. And geotechnical engineer building a product for geotechnical engineers, that's going to be completely different to AgeUp, who you guys covered recently, um, who are supporting kind of uh, people through the NDIS program. Um, helping Declan and helping Grace, we need to do that in two completely different ways. It doesn't make sense to box them into the traditional accelerator model. And so we've kind of departed from that as a consequence. So, you know, just a really interesting conversation in the sense that, you know, again, the tide is shifting in a different direction and they are looking at a, a better way to do all of this. Now, going back to the theme that we had a little bit earlier, I did also ask him about the current state of play for the sector and how people are feeling what's going on. Here's what he had to say on that front. I almost feel like if we were having this conversation two, three years ago pre-COVID, it'd be really different. Um, a lot of kind of the COVID normal, really high valuations, kind of that, you know, we're growing because everyone's in lockdown, so my business model benefits from that, kind of took us a little bit away from just really basic, you know, core startup economics. You know, do your gross margins make sense? Um, is your cash burn kind of sustainable? All As long as you've got those elements, we're seeing with our founders that they're not struggling at all. They're still early stage. And so the market's you know, not contracting in a way that's going to hurt them at that early stage. Um, and since their kind of economics make sense, they're not too worried either about running out of money for now. Um, I think what will matter, though, is the investor side, actually. So we're seeing a lot of conversations there where investors kind of 
overextended themselves or potentially came newly into the investment scene over the last few years, kind of VC became very attractive during then. And so we're seeing a lot of them kind of go back out into their networks and kind of start an education campaign for themselves about like, what do I do now? Um, you know, the valuation that, you know, a few months ago was $10 million probably shouldn't have been valued at $10 million and kind of that started to get corrected. But for VCs like Scalava and I think for the other kind of more institutional funds where we stuck to our thesis, we haven't seen too much of a change. And with our founders as well, we stuck to kind of what take what is required to build a sustainable business. They haven't had to change too much. It's the ones where they kind of overextended a little bit that we're seeing start to struggle. So there is that general sense, isn't there, Ben, that, you know, we are in for some tougher times. And, you know, as you were talking about those deciles and all of that along the way. Um, of course, we also caught up with uh, Cheryl Mack from Aussie Angels, the CEO there this week. Of course, she put together a piece for Startup Daily around how Australia's sophisticated investor rules are hurting female founders. So I said, mate, come on in, have a chat. Tell me your point of view, because, of course, she has championed this for a long time now. So she started off by talking about the male bias she sees in investment and the cycle that's going on. So it starts with what I'm seeing in the market, which I'm you know, kind of calling the cycle of funding, which is that we've traditionally seen founders being overwhelmingly male, right? And when you go to do your first round of funding, who do you go to first? You go to do your friends and family round. For men, typically they have more male friends than female friends. The mates and family round. <laughs> yeah, right? So like, and that makes sense, right? I have more women friends than I have men friends. Uh, but when they go out to their friends and they raise, they tend to be male. And then when they go to do the next round, for example, when they go to get VC funding, because they've had a little bit of early validation and they already have support, uh, they tend to be more likely to get funding from VCs. And then because there is also a higher chance of getting funded because you have a warm introduction, they also get a higher chance of getting funded. And then there are also more men in the room, typically around the IC, the investment committee table. Mm-hmm. And and then, of course, when that company uh, continues to grow, they're more likely to succeed because they're VC-backed and they have all this support. And then when they exit and they make it big and everyone makes money, including the early angels, all of those people tend to be more on the male side. And so, of course, what are they going to do when, they have, when they've had that exit? They'll reinvest it into the ecosystem either as starting their own company again or as angel investors. And so it perpetuates that cycle because then the next generation of founders tend to be more male. So we need to break that cycle. So Ben, here we are, two blokes prattling on about this. Um, do you have this in the back of your mind? Do you think about it? I'm, you know, I'm a middle-aged white guy, so I'm kind of acutely conscious of my privilege and position and try to work pretty hard on sort of shifting the dial in various ways. What's your take? Is it a little bit too blokey still? Yes, And diversity is often in my mind when I'm looking at a deal or when I'm talking to a founder or when I'm talking to people within the ecosystem, both here and overseas. It's like, am I looking at this through the right lens? She uh, made a point, or she put forward four ways to break the cycle. You can read more about this on startupdaily.net and also took a swing at the sophisticated investor rules and how they disadvantage women, explaining some of the problems that occur, especially for key moments in women's lives. Here's what she said. 
I think the main players in this ecosystem that can make the biggest difference are founders themselves and VCs and angels, the ones who are writing the checks. From the founder's perspective, I think it's important to think about diversity on your cap table from day one. So when you're going out to do that first round, making a point of thinking very purposefully about who you want to bring onto your very first cap table and not just making it your close mates. Um, and so recently I've had a couple of founders who have reached out to me specifically to say, who can we bring onto our cap table? And that's really good. I'd love to see more of that. Um, the next step is uh, around having more female investors who are writing checks. And one of the things that I've uh, seen that does hurt women investors, particularly female angel investors who want to get into this space, is the sophisticated investor rules. Um, though, so that is either the income or assets test. Uh, the assets test, uh, well actually, I'll start by saying, Women in general, we still have a pay gap in Australia. So that is yep. one of the things that is hurting us because how are we supposed to meet the income or assets test if we aren't making as much as men? Um, and that's still, you know, I yeah. want to be clear, we're, we're moving towards the right direction, but we're still not there. The other issue is that what the age at which professionals tend to naturally reach the income that would be required to meet that income test is also the age at which women tend to have children. So we do take some time off. And of course, if you don't meet that income for the last two years and you've taken some time off sometime in those two years, then you're not likely to meet the test. And the other part is at that very point in time, there's considerable capital reallocation when it comes to raising a family that also creates a new challenge. Correct as well. Um, and so, you know, there's another stat uh, that women retire with 20 to 30% less super yeah. than men. And, and these are issues that we need to address. While at the same time, uh, women make fantastic investors. I think there is a perception in market that women are more risk averse. And that is absolutely not the case. Um, and, and we need more women around the investment committee table. So women make great investors, Ben. That's a good point to make. And of course, the female-led companies, and of course, there was great news this week with New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane confirming that the state government will launch the Carla Zampatti Fund, putting $10 million into early-stage female-led businesses. They produce pretty good returns along the way too, don't they? Indeed. We, we, we need to have more of this support, and I'm glad that Matt Keane and others recognise this. And we, I'd suggest, as, as those who have the ability to influence, need to support and we need to push where we can. I think we now just need to get Tasmania and Queensland on board on the East Coast because, of course, you know, genius steals. And I do think that the $10 million Alice Anderson fund that LaunchVic runs, you know, may be a little bit similar to what's happening in New South Wales. But the more, the merrier. It's just great. Now, speaking of raising, we caught up with uh, Gary Zernema from Vouch. He's the CEO and co-founder this week. It's a video collection platform which has just raised $8 million. Uh, US VC Stage 2 Capital chipped in along with OIF locally. I started off by asking him about the fact that he's an ex-Canva exec uh, and he's had Canva and Atlassian and some other great Australian startup companies on board from the start to help as he's built this business. Here's what he had to say about that. Yeah, it's been amazing to have early support from some of the sort of largest tech companies in the Aussie ecosystem. I think, you know, Canva, Atlassian, CultureAmp, um, lately Shopify and a few others have come through. I think everyone's feeling the pinch around video and how do you bring that into the organization across multiple departments? It's, it's tough, like video traditionally is very hard to create. It's production heavy, it's expensive, as I'm sure you, know, you would know as part of the program. 
basically, you know, for these organizations, they need quite a lot of volume of video content. So doing sort of one big shoot a year with a customer, for instance, is not sustainable anymore. So it's been awesome to see their support um, from the beginning. And I guess, yeah, coming full circle with Canva, the team that, that I used to work with and now Vouch customers, and it's been a really nice experience. So, yeah, I think the ecosystem here is, is great at sort of jumping in and, and using products that they need and supporting each other. Do you get that sense, Ben, with the startups that you work with? There, there is kind of this ecosystem where they are looking after each other and buying each other's products and helping build each other's products and just creating this incredible level of support and belief in what each other are doing. For sure. Friends like to help other friends succeed. And if you've worked with people before, wouldn't you like to see your former colleagues succeed, particularly if it plugs in well to your current system? Now, uh, I did ask him about the US capital, why he went there. He explained that the business is growing quite strongly in the US, so it made sense. This was his point. For us, from the beginning, we had this sort of model of adopting Vouch where you could log in for free as a global customer and start using the platform straight away. So we adopted this sort of what's called, I guess, a freemium model. Um, and we found that sort of like 70% of our customer base quickly shifted overseas from, from Australia. So. Obviously, we had the support of the Aussie ecosystem initially, but then when we went over, we've kind of got 65% of our customers are US-based. And stage two was it was a natural partner for us. So they they came through um, actually after an introduction from one of our co-lead investors, our innovation fund, who's Aussie, and they were super excited about the US traction we had, and, and they were a great fit for us. So so that's why they participated in this round. So that's Gary Zernema talking about why he took on the stage two capital in the US as well as as. OIF locally. Now, given that he's got, uh, I think, a million hours worth of video already done, I did ask him about the key trends that he's starting to see because, of course, video is becoming an essential part of corporate comms nowadays. You don't just send out a memo anymore. Um, He talked about what's going on in this space because, of course, Vouch is all about making it simpler and easier to use. Here's what he said. Yeah, I think that alternatives today are tricky. You've got to ask people, whether it's a team member or a customer or just someone you want to hear from on video to sort of record themselves via a selfie or, or means that are just not fit for purpose. Um, or you've got to sit down with a camera and a lighting crew and, and sort of put people in a room for a long time. So I guess the trends that have emerged for us are scale. So people are using Vouch to sort of collect lots and lots of video, mix and match that with a library, edit it and share it and push it out into channels. So We've seen a lot of video content coming through that's pushed onto websites or social channels or different spaces. But yeah, those are the key trends that are emerging is really how do you generate a scalable volume of video in a simple way? Um, And then I guess teams across the organizations are all jumping in and adopting it for different use cases. So it's been been cool to see that happen naturally. But yeah, I guess the scale and volume of video is a big trend that we're seeing. So I reckon that's going to be a pretty amazing business. And if a, you know, for a TikTok generation, I just think it is going to be an expectation that we all are communicating on video. And that customer testimonial thing, I think if you can do that in video form, it'd be quite powerful rather than just hitting a five-star rating or any other version. You can really see the emotion and the context of somebody with video. It provides that greater dimension. Well, you know, you no longer Fred Blogs one five seven eight two. You know who is either complaining <laughs> or praising, yeah, praising in great levels. Our final guest in this week's suds is Minute Me founder Simon Steele from the recurring meeting management software business Minute Me, which is based at Stone and Chalk in Adelaide. Every week at two thirty, Ben, we get someone on from there to tell us their startup story. Here was this week's one: meeting minutes. Are you a good minute taker? 
I try to take minutes, but it's one of those things. When someone's saying a really interesting story, I want to give them my attention. I want to look in their eyes, which means that I'm not typing or writing as I should. So this is why this is such a brilliant solution. Now, they've bootstrapped the business so far. They've got about 1,000 users. They've done that all by word of mouth. And now they're getting to the point where they're looking to raise capital. They're looking to go offshore. I did ask him about identifying the target market because as I'm listening, I'm thinking... Gosh, those PNC meetings you sit in, the footy club volunteers. I mean, you know, we'd all do a whole bunch of extracurricular stuff that doesn't have an executive system sitting there in the room, or maybe you're a small business and can't afford one. Anyway, so really interesting here. He's built a great idea to a massive problem, and it's a fantastic solution. But he had problem identifying who his target market is. He's got this freemium model. Here's what he had to say about that. That's actually our biggest problem is trying to identify a target market because you're right, everyone has meetings. And the reality is, for me, everyone who has meetings should be using MinuteMe to run them better. Uh, so um, we've got uh, the friends, uh, parents and friends committee at, uh, at our kids' school are using it. Uh, great example of a community group where they're just volunteers helping out in the school uh, and creating minutes for that and are loving the platform for that purpose. So it's kind of got a semi-formal nature to it for those kind of committee meetings. Um, we've got church groups that are using it just to manage and run their church. Um, we've got IT companies, uh, you know, up to 220 staff that are using it to run, literally run their entire company and for every single meeting that they have. Uh, so, uh, and we're having conversations with a couple of bigger corporates, um, a, a bank that we're having conversations with, um, company that are involved in um, public-private partnerships, uh, construction companies. Uh, and the latest thing that we've started to do is to introduce an integration with Smokeball, which is essentially a CRM or a customer relationship management for lawyers and for law firms. Uh, so our integration with that is allowing lawyers to have better meetings uh, and record all of their action items in MintMe for their meeting notes, and then that feeds directly into the Smokeball system that they use to manage their clients and their client matters. So as he said, he's going to be chasing the corporates, which is great. And of course, that's where the cash will come from. But it is kind of cool that, you know, the small mum and dad users, let's call them that, that do are part of those local volunteer communities will be able to use this and there'll be a free option that will just make life a little bit easier for them. Of course, when you're trying to find your use case, you always want great examples of it. He had one and I asked him, you know, have you got a great one? Because he started out telling the story of how he stuffed up big time and kind of missed something and didn't action it and, you know, was in a little bit of trouble. And so I said, well, is someone else had a Simon Steele moment where they've come up and said, thanks, you've really saved my bacon here. He told the story of a company that was dismissed someone but didn't keep any minutes and got into massive trouble. So I'm going to let him tell this story. Ah, you know what? So the biggest one so far has been, uh, and it's not a very nice story, unfortunately, but it was to do with um, uh, firing an employee at a company. Um, And so this particular company had been burnt once before because they had an employee who was fired uh, and the company didn't take any notes of previous meetings and hadn't been recording what had happened uh, during their their um, performance reviews. Uh, And so what happened was this employee, after they were fired, then they took the company to court and uh, the company had to pay a fair sum of money uh, to this ex-employee. The good story of this was that since they picked up Minami, they had a similar scenario, um, but during their performance reviews had been taking meeting minutes or notes um, with with their one-on-ones and their performance reviews with this employee 
everything was documented. All the notes went to the employee. They knew exactly what was happening. Uh, they knew exactly what they were supposed to do. There was just no, no doubt in anyone's mind. Everything was clear, it was well documented in MinuteMe, uh, and the employee was fired and subsequently had no recourse because they'd been across the entire matter. Second time around, a little bit wiser. Kept the minutes, problem solved. As I said to him, in that one example, I think you can see the value proposition in that business and Minute Me very, very clearly. Um, I think they'll do really, really well. Um, should put you in touch, Ben. Yeah, sounds sounds good for my next Strata Committee meeting. <laughs> well, you're gonna, yeah, 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 Strata Committee, there's another one. <laughs> ben Chong from Right Click Capital, great to have you on SARDS. Really appreciated your insights. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you, Simon. You have a great weekend, guys. We'll see you on the show 2pm Monday. Have a great weekend. Bye for now. Bye.